I'm Tom Perumian, KTSA News. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to a new week. Jack Riccardi got 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hope you had a good weekend and you're keeping cool today. I just read where a town in Idaho, and I'm not sure if you pronounce it Moscow or Moscow, Idaho. I think there's a big university there. Um, this town in Idaho has just agreed to pay $300,000 in settlement money to a group of Christians who in March of 2021 sued the city because they were arrested outside their church in 2020. They were having an outside church service because they were told they couldn't have one inside. So they were outside, they were singing, and they didn't have masks on, but they were outside. And they were arrested. They were held overnight in the local jail. They were charged with violating a public health emergency. They sued. And now the city of Moscow or Moscow is paying them $300,000. You just don't see that very often. I think there's a lot of that. I think a lot of that happened, right? I know a lot of that happened. You see very little recompense or reckoning. And I think that might explain what's going on in our world right now. Um, I was talking about this with a friend of mine over the weekend. Um, you no doubt have noticed that this is not uh, just another summer in our lives. The news organizations, the news coverage of this summer wants you to know there has never been a summer like this. There's never been. This is unbelievable, unprecedented, and most of all, unsurvivable. All of us are going to die from the summer of 2023. You can't go outside. You can't take it. People can't work. They can't exist. No food can be grown. This heat is killing us. We're not just having summer. We're having climate. I I'm waiting for them to give the heat a name like they give storms a name, like they now give blizzards and and uh, winter storms names, I am sure they're going to give, if they haven't already given the summer weather, a name. But right now the name is Fiery Death, I guess. You, you know what I mean, right? We played the clip of, uh, of Neil Oliver uh, last week when he was talking about how, how the weather maps, when you watch the weather on television, by the way, it's not weather anymore, it's climate coverage. It's continuing climate coverage. But when you... But when you watch it, the weather maps are all black and orange and bright red, and the oceans are on fire, and, you know, it just it looks like the planet is uninhabitable. If we weren't already here, we would think, don't go there. Humans can't live on that planet. It's summer. It gets hot in summer. We're in Texas. Texas summers. But it's a panic, right? It's... It's, they're not even reporting the temperature anymore because that apparently is not good enough or sexy enough. Now it's the heat index. And the heat index records are being smashed. They've only used the heat index since 1979, so I'm not sure how significant it is that we're smashing a set of numbers that's only been around, you know, for, you know, 40-something years. So we're in this sort of weird... Um, 
news cycle where instead of just today's weather, tomorrow's weather, it's, it's, in, it's meant to induce a reaction. And you are supposed to see what is happening right now as something that's never happened before, that we cannot sustain, and that we have caused. This is, this is our day of reckoning. This is our fault for driving Tahoes and Suburbans and having air conditioning and wanting, you know, the creature comforts. And we've brought this on ourselves. The planet is angry at us, and it's killing us. And the maps are scary, and the graphs are scary. And um, and after I get off the phone with my friend, after we had a good laugh about this, because he works in the media too, um, I had kind of a clarity moment. I realized that this weather coverage is very similar to the way COVID was reported and introduced into our lives in the spring of 2020. Do you remember that? We uh, This is something we've never had before. Nothing like this has ever happened before. It's going to kill a lot of people. It may, it may kill you. You better do everything we tell you to do. And don't hesitate or question, because if you do, you will kill people. Maybe your loved ones. Oh, and by the way, we brought this on ourselves by not being prepared, by not listening to international organizations, by, by trusting ourselves instead of global enterprises. And we need to put them in charge of everything. And remember, it panicked people. Remember the scenarios of people running up to you in the store, demanding you put a mask. Where's your mask? And if it didn't happen to you, I know you saw it happen on various YouTube and TikTok videos. And you know, there were, there were people running up to other people, scolding them and assigning them uh, responsibilities. And, and I remember thinking at the time, and we said it, we talked about it at the time, what puts that kind of fear into people? These were regular people at one time. Some of them are still wearing the masks. And they got very afraid. And they became very determined to become compliant. They're keeping the mask on so you'll know that they are still obedient and believers in science. But they would run up to people they thought, should have a mask on or shouldn't be there or were standing too close and they'd yell at them. And I don't know if they really were afraid of those people because after all, if you're afraid of them, why are you running up to them? But they would and they did. And I thought, you know, this summer and the coverage of it and the framing of it feels like the new COVID. We panic you and then we start taking things away from you and then we start telling you what you're going to have to do from now on and by golly, you better believe in it. Don't be a denier. You know, the COVID denier is now the, the science denier, the climate denier. Now, we also know something else about the events of 2020. Except for rare occasions like this little town in Idaho, there's no reckoning. There's been no reckoning. People that were wrong, whether they were in government, whether they were self-appointed COVID scolds, somebody come up with the term branch COVIDians, I love that. None of them, from governors on down to the, the local crazy at your HEB, no one has ever brought them to reckoning. No one has ever said, hey, you were wrong. What you believed was wrong, what you were told was wrong, 
what you demanded of other people was wrong, was not efficacious, was in some cases counterproductive. The things you demanded and got for the society hurt people, hurt society, damaged children, wrecked the economy. And now we're finding out, or maybe you suspected it all along, that these things were neither necessary nor scientifically sound, these these responses to COVID. But the people that advocated them have never had to and I'm not, look, I'm not personally wanting people to come up to me and tell me they're sorry, but just think about it. If you never had to face that you were wrong the last time, you're going to be wrong again. You're going to go for it again because there was no consequence to being wrong. I, I remember when I was a kid, one of the most striking lessons in history was when they taught us that after the, uh, as the, as the, um, as the Allies were rolling across Europe and, and rolling back the Nazis and liberating the concentration camps and liberating places that had been under German control, the local population took matters into their own hands. They knew that Allied troops wouldn't bother with this, couldn't, wouldn't have time to bother with it. They went and they got the collaborators. Do you remember this? Do you remember learning this in school? They went, each town, each village, they went for the people that had collaborated with the Nazis, that had been traitors. And they dragged them out into the public. And in some extreme cases, they killed them. In other cases, they shaved their heads, or they paraded them through town, or they shamed them. Because they wanted to make it clear, you chose wrong. You picked the wrong side, and you hurt people, your own people. Now, I am not calling for anything like that to happen here. I'm just making the point that when there's no reckoning, when there's no acknowledging that you got it wrong, and the humility and the learning that comes with that, the growth that comes with that, when there's none of that, and there really has been none of that since COVID, we're prime for another panic. We're prime for another moment like 2020 and i think the summer of 2023 is the next thing this weather panic just sounds and looks a lot to me like the covid panic let me play this for you this is uh abc this week uh, anchor martha raditz uh setting up the story of the week which of course uh is the weather listen to this cut number four Wherever you are joining us from this morning the scorching summer heat wave unlike anything we've seen before is affecting your life. It's engulfed parts of the country for weeks, torching the southwestern okay. and eastern. Did you hear the language here? It's engulfing. It's torching. No matter where you are, this is affecting you. Well, I have I have family in New England. They're having a great summer. <laughs> they're, they're, they enjoy this this warm weather. They're, they're, it's not a hundred degrees where they are. It's eighty and ninety, and they love it. You know, there was a time not so long ago when people only feared cold weather because cold weather is what used to kill people, especially poor people. Cold weather is when you froze to death. Cold weather is when you couldn't grow your crops. Warm weather, people wanted it. They hoped summer would go on as long as possible. People thrived in summer. They would never have complained about a warm summer because they had been waiting all year for it. Anyway, back to Martha. 
It's engulfed parts of the country for weeks, torching the southwestern and eastern United States with triple-digit temperatures, leaving tens of millions of people under heat alerts this weekend. It is a life-threatening emergency. Mm. The extreme heat is also searing Europe and Asia, putting the world Fearing. on track once again for the hottest month ever recorded. Okay, hold it, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. How do we know that? How do we know that? There's never been a hotter month ever? Ever. We don't have, we don't have those records. We don't, we don't have month-by-month month records that go back to the beginning of mankind. What are, ta- what are they talking about? Well, they're just making it up. Now, it is true that you can study with things like polar ice cores and stuff. You, you could study past climatological you know, behaviors, and, and what those studies reveal is that the climate has always had ups and downs and changes and fluctuations. That is true. But to say there's never been a month, that is literally impossible to say. Continue. It's a record that is not likely to stand for long, as scientists warn that human activities contributing Mm -hmm. to an increasingly warming planet could lead to a future where weather like this will become more common, more deadly, and longer. So um, it's your fault. First of all, the, the sky is falling, chicken little. And now on top of that, you did this. I don't know how they uh, explain the 1930s. If you look at any temperature graph, the 1930s uh, were the hottest decade we have of re- uh, on record, at least. And they, there were some really, really extreme highs in the 1930s, uh, places that have records that are still standing. Now, there was human activity in the 1930s. I don't think there was nearly as much as there is now. There wasn't central air conditioning. There weren't SUVs. But, I mean, um, it, it's... It sounds like that whole sort of history just began and we've lived through all of it and history is just whatever you remember. So if you don't remember being this hot in the summer, then there's never been a summer like this. Continue. It's an urgent global challenge for people, their communities, their countries, and the planet we all share. Mm. You have candidates out there like Donald Trump who mock the idea. All right, of now hold on, change. hold on, hold on, hold on. She's she's uh, she's going to talk to the governor of Washington. I want to play this for you, but we got to take the break. She's going to talk to the governor of Washington about what we can do about this. A lot of times, there's selective graphing and statistical cherry picking in order to make a point by the way i i think you could probably argue that both sides do it um but when you look back at just things like long-term temperature records the most severe heat waves in the united states and europe uh were in the 1930s and that was the period known as the dust bowl you've seen the famous photographs of people uh trying to migrate east to west, and uh, they now think that a lot of that was man-made because it was poor land uh, management and uh, combined with the drought led to uh, these heat waves and these dust storms and and what have you. Um, But again, at one time, human beings uh, welcomed, reveled in warm weather because you could live you could grow crops, and um, it was it was cold weather that killed people. It was cold weather that was dreaded. You also probably know that over the history of the climate change debate, 
they've at various times warned of a new ice age or an expanding polar cap situation. Well, now they've they've shifted to heat because that's what's literally in season. Um, and I just to me this just feels like the setup of 2020. And because the people who set us up never have had to fess up or admit to their mistakes and their exaggerations and their distortions, they're engaging in it again. I think it's some of the same people. It's the same politicians and many of the same people in the media. Here's here's Martha Raddatz now. She's going to interview uh, Jay Inslee. And listen to the question she asks him versus the answer he gives. He's a big climate change guy, governor of uh, Washington. Listen to this. You have candidates out there like Donald Trump who mock the idea of climate change. And there are a vast number of Americans who ignore it, don't care about it or or don't believe it. How do you convince those people it's time to care? Well, we can't wait for Donald Trump to figure this out. We don't have time to mess around to wait for this knucklehead to figure this out. We just got to make sure he's not in office and the way we do this is vote against climate deniers, mm. vote mm. against people who refuse to assist this moral and economic uh, crisis that we have. Uh, you can't wait for these folks. You just got to make sure they're not in office where they can do damage. Let them go off and play golf. We'll solve this problem. It's a mm. solvable problem if we work so, together. Notice that um, one minute we were talking about the planet, and the next minute it's, it's all Trump. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Everything comes back to him. Every every discussion on ABC News comes back to Trump. And her question, I what I heard her ask was, how do you convince people that don't believe we're we're killing the planet? I got no answer to that. His answer was, well, don't elect Trump. We must keep Trump. And he, he goes on. If I played the whole thing, he, he talks about DeSantis. He throws DeSantis in the water too. Um, it, it just feels very, um, like, here we go again. And climate is just the stage that the Branch Covidians are now standing on. And they'll really be happy if they can figure out a way to make you wear a mask as part of fighting uh, global warming. Uh, this is a story from the Guardian newspaper of uh, London. Birth strikers meet the women who refuse to have children until climate change ends. A movement of women have decided not to procreate in response to the coming climate breakdown and collapse of civilization. And then it interviews uh, people, uh, Blythe Pepino. As soon as Blythe Pepino got together with her partner, Joshua, two years ago, she felt this, quote, overwhelming urge to create a family with him. Um, and then she attended a lecture, the article goes on, by a group called Extinction Rebellion. I don't think you need me to tell you what they are. And um, Blythe was inspired to have a series of sad conversations with Joshua. Bad news, Joshua. Uh, no having babies. Pepino, who turns 33 today, found that other women, especially in climate-conscious circles, were struggling. Could we turn that down, Don? Were struggling with the same question but too afraid to talk about it for fear of judgment or ridicule. Jeez, God, I don't know why. Didn't AOC at one point say she wasn't going to have kids until we got the climate straightened out, too, which sounds to me like a win-win. Um, so these, these women have gone on uh, baby strike, birth strike, uh, until the climate 
is uh, resolved, uh, we are genuinely scared to bring life into the world. I, I, I think we should um, support them in this because they sound like people that we probably don't want to have raising and educating kids. So, go yes, by all means, I'm 100%. Where can I send a donation? I want to support uh, the birth strike. I will get on that picket line. I will do that. Uh, what do you think? 210-599-5555. We're going to talk about it. I did not go to see Oppenheimer or the Barbie movie, which I guess combined had a huge, it was a huge weekend at the movies. We'll talk about that uh, coming up. We're going to talk about uh, kids and cell phones. Uh, we're going to talk about the Biden family business. We've got a lot of stuff we'll get into here. And, yeah, we've got these ladies that have created a, an organization called Birth Strikers. They refuse to have children until climate change ends. Now, the window for women to have children is not a very long window. I mean, when women, I, I, don't, I, know, I don't know what exactly the ages are, but right there's like, there's an age beyond which most women are not comfortable having kids or it's not even sometimes possible for them to have kids. So these women are, are gambling that uh, we're all going to do what we're supposed to do and save the planet before they are unable to conceive. But then what will saving the planet look like? What does that mean? Climate change will end, meaning the climate will stop changing. It's never stopped changing. Does it mean sufficient numbers of people obey and, and bow down and comply to their um, climate gods? How will we know when that is? It kind of feels like a goal that you can't reach or define. And so I'm going to... I'm going to say I, I'm going to call BS on this. It sounds it sounds very insincere to me. It sounds like they're just uh, they're angry and they're bitter, so they're making the men in their lives uh, suffer by not having kids or not having sex or whatever it is. It doesn't, doesn't really sound. I'm not, I'm not not too impressed with the uh, with the birth strikers, but um, when you think about history, when People, when institutions, when governments got something wrong, it was important for that to be recognized, acknowledged. That's, that's why there is a movement to get slavery reparations. I mean, I'm not in favor of that, but my understanding of the argument is not just we want the money, but we, we want you to acknowledge the damage, the pain, the sin the immorality of, of slavery, well, okay, I want you, Branch Covidians, to acknowledge the pain, the suffering, the economic disaster, the harm to our children. You have little kids that can't read and speak properly because they couldn't see anybody's face during critical times in their development. I mean, there's been no reckoning. I mean, once in a great while, like the Idaho story, but but really... Whether it's Dr. Fauci, whether it's politicians in both parties at all levels, whether it's public health, no reckoning. These people have never had to come forward and say, we got it wrong. We, we missed the forecast. We missed the diagnosis. You know, it's okay. The weatherman says it's going to rain tomorrow and it doesn't rain. We laugh about it. But these people made predictions and then converted them to mandates and orders and a strict regime of control 
that turned out to not be scientifically sound, that turned out not to be necessary or even supportable, and, and, and then it hurt people and killed people and kept people away from each other. And I mean, you could take the, we, we could spend the whole time talking about all the possible ways this has changed us and damaged us. I'm talking about the, the lockdowns of 2020 and 2021. But there's really been no reckoning. And, and now these same people who misread the COVID models are waving around climate models and demanding obedience and compliance. They're coming after central air. They're coming after gas stoves. They're coming after, I heard today, they're coming after water heaters. And the fear-mongering is the same, and the panic is the same. This is what we played last week. I want to play it again. Neil Oliver, uh, great uh, GBTV commentator, um, and scholar and um, just a brilliant guy uh, talking about the, the climate change fear-mongering, cut number seven. Project fear, fear porn, uh, we've all become uh, so used to it. I, I don't know about you, Dan, but I, I, it's increasingly getting to the point where if the powers that be want us to be frightened of something, I take that as the signal to, to have no fear. Uh, it's it's a very tired playbook that they keep working from. All the time we're supposed to be terrified. It's absolutely ridiculous, the, the way that they're pushing the climate terror. When did we get to the point where every weather map through the summer uh, is in shades of uh, red and black? Uh, I know. Them to create this illusion. You know, they're turning the planet into what yeah. looks like an overcooked pizza. Uh, you know, blistering in black and you know, and bubbling as though the place is melting, uh, and it's it's blatant and patent nonsense. In the in the latter part of the 19th century and, and in in the first half of the 20th century, rivers ran dry in Europe. Mm. You know, uh, you know, the, some of the major rivers of Europe were so dry for certain periods that you could walk dry shod from one side of them to the other. Heat waves are a are a na- are a are a cyclical natural process. And then from the middle part of the of the 20th century, the 60s and 70s, the, the fear that was being pushed by the by the scientists in inverted commas was of the return of, of ice. You know that we were going to drift into an ice age, until they got into the late 70s and early 80s when they decided that it was you know here we go again and they called it global warming. But then the the science so-called couldn't back up the claims of global warming to such an extent that they had to change the fear label to climate change. Um, which is at least descriptive of what climate does. Uh, all of this, all of this, is just an incessant attempt to keep people frightened about one thing after another. For the last three mm. years, we've just gone from pandemic to war to now the planet's about to burst into flames. <laughs> By the way, you got to admit, if I could do this entire show in that accent, you would you'd listen way more, right? Come on, everybody would love to hear that. Um, what do you think? 210-599-5555. Uh, look, I, I am not saying that it's not a hot day. It, it is. It's a hot day. And just on a personal note, I, I'm one of those people that perspires a lot. So I feel it. I'm dealing with it. Um, but I'm also one of those people that moved here <laughs> to get away from winter. I hate winter. And um, I cannot imagine... Um, Moving back to where winter is five or six months in duration, I, I, heat I can live with, heat I can manage if they will let us, if they will not choke us off from electricity. Because here's the other thing, um, 
It's not true that it's hotter than it's ever been. That's not true. But I'll tell you what is true. We have more that we can do about it than ever before. Think about people living down here in the 1920s and 30s, no central air, maybe no air at all, maybe a fan occasionally, Uh, public buildings, businesses, vehicles, no air conditioning. People walking around, nothing. And they did it. So whatever you think of heat, we are coping with it, we are dealing with it, we are overcoming it. We know more about keeping yourself hydrated. You see people walking around. I do this now. I have one of those metal uh, water cans that you can buy. It's a little pricey, but it's worth it. I take it with me everywhere I go. It's one of those that stays cold for hours. Keep it in the car. When I get back in the car, the ice hasn't even melted yet. And, you know, you just, you deal with it. Do you get the sense that if the climate panickers had their way, your life would be better because the planet would be cooler or the weather would be more middle of the road? I don't think so. I don't think they can turn back the the thermometer to where maybe you would like it better. I mean, yeah, I'd like it if every day got to about 80, 85 degrees. That would be great. But, but, but they can't do that. We know that. We know that if I get a solar panel on my roof, we're not going to lower the temperature. So what we would have if they get their way is they would have more control. They would have more dictatorial power over what you could buy and what you could own and what you could use and how you could live, which is what happened during COVID. They didn't control COVID. They promised to give us 15 days, but they controlled you. How many people listening right now didn't get to be with a loved one who was dying or in the hospital or go to a wedding or a graduation? How many people missed their grandchildren or lost a business that they were starting up or running because they just couldn't sustain it under all the rules and limitations? And and, and so if you want to know what their world would look like, it would still be hot. But now they'd have a lot more control and a lot more say over how you coped with it and dealt with it and lived in it. And how many of these do we have to have before people wake up to that? It's marketing. And like all good marketing, you have to admire it in a way. You know, like I, I'll admit, sometimes I'll hear something in an ad and I'll say, that's crazy or that's ridiculous. But I have to give them credit. It's like cleverly put together or worded. But it's still marketing. Um What's Elon Musk doing with Twitter? Anybody know? Says that uh, Twitter is getting a new logo. Uh, Right now, if you go to Twitter on your desktop, uh, you don't get the little blue bird. You get the letter X. It hasn't changed on the, uh, uh, the mobile app yet, or at least last time I checked it hadn't. But, yeah, now it's an X instead of the blue bird. And he says uh, we're getting rid of that brand and the birds, and he's asking uh, people to submit designs that involved the letter X or the shape of an X. So basically, richest guy in the world is crowdsourcing his new logo. you gotta love, got to love that. Um, he does love X, right? SpaceX, Tesla Model X. He's big on X. I think X 
is the name of his AI company, too. So, um, Will makes a great point, Jack at KTSA.com. He says, old cliche, this is the most important election of our lifetime. New cliche, this is the hottest summer ever. Yeah, we've, we've heard this before. Um, a lot of people writing in about the uh, media coverage of the climate. Uh, Jesse says, thank you for bringing it up. I've been telling my wife the same thing. I watched the news. Now they have a climate change chart that they bring up. Uh, it supposedly reads out what part of the heat is due to climate change. These people are meteorologists, not climatologists. Uh, Eleanor is a 210-599-5555 on KTSA. Eleanor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, that, that fellow had a wonderful accent, but, you know, to us here in Texas, you have a nice accent, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel better I, now. Okay, good. Uh, I, this business about being hotter than it's ever been before is an absolute absurdity. It's uh, People are historically illiterate. Um, Texas, in the late 1850s, had a record drought that was so bad that a German scientist did the first endocrinology to try and figure out if this was uh, an exception or if this happened in Texas regularly. And lo and behold, he found out it happened very regularly. Yeah, I don't think we've had the... the when they talk about smashing records and there's 3,000 new records a day, a lot of these records are of a specific thing that hasn't been observed or observable for very long. So when you talk about the hottest month in the last 6,500 years, which is what they said on ABC, they don't have 6,500 years of monthly temperature records. No, no, they don't. They absolutely don't. And furthermore, they're very lazy about how they collect their data. Texas has weather daily weather data going back to the 1840s, but you never hear anybody talk about anything older than the 1890s, and it's because they don't want to take the time and the effort to go dig through the records and see and look at the data. Yeah, I don't know. It may be laziness, but I, I think this is all designed to, like, I don't think it's lazy as much as it's a design feature. It is It is to shape people's expectations and behaviors. When you start taking things away from them, you'll be able to say, look, we, we warned you, you brought this on yourself, and now to save you, we have to get rid of central air conditioning or, you know, gas-powered cars or whatever it is. It's, it's going to be the way they force people to do things that people wouldn't choose to do uh, Eleanor, uh, if they were given a choice. Uh, but I appreciate your call. Thank you. And I appreciate your kind words on the accent. I still like his. Um, what do you think about all this? 210-599-5555. And so what I'm saying is it's marketing, but it's it's more than marketing. It's also um, sort of a, a marketing strategizing. If you accept that you've done this to the planet, okay, I've got you on guilt, I've got you on culpability. I've got you worried, scared. What's going to happen to my children? Should I even have children? These women in Britain not having children. And then, and then whatever follows will not even require force. You will gleefully submit to the pronouncements and the, and the prescriptions that follow, as many people did and still are doing from COVID. JR poll question, uh, at what age should kids get a phone, their own phone? 
I will talk about that coming up. You can vote in the JR poll at KTSA.com or when you call into the show. Uh, speaking of phones, um, they're sitting around at the Four Seasons in Dubai. This is in 2015. It's a winter afternoon. And they are um, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer and two guys named Nikolai and Vadim who are now having drinks and appetizers with Hunter and Devin, and these guys are Burisma executives, the Ukrainian energy company. And they're uh, having their drinks. It's supposed to be a really nice hotel. A friend of mine stayed there. It's incredible. It might be one of the nicest hotels in the world. So they're living large. They're, you know, they're moguls. And one of them asks Hunter, can you ring your dad? Oh, absolutely. Puts his phone down in the middle of the table, dials up Vice President Joe Biden, puts him on speaker, says I'm sitting here with Nikolai and Vadim, and they need our support, and goes on to talk about the U.S. policy toward Ukraine and the corruption investigation. Remember Joe Biden bragged about ending that. Um, I, I was thinking about this over the weekend. It's got to be, for any son or daughter of a president, it's got to be tough that everywhere you go, people see you as a conduit to your father. I don't care what president we're talking about. I don't care who they are. Every adult child of a president is eyeballed, is coveted, is sucked up to. I mean, you would never know if people really wanted to be your friend, if people really wanted to date you, if people really wanted to hang with you, if they liked you, or if they were just hoping to get closer to whoever the big guy is at the time. So I'll give you that. I'll give you that it's it's got to be like nothing any of us have ever been through. I mean, nobody's ever wanted to meet your dad that bad. <laughs> no offense. Even so, even so, as weird as it must be and as strange a world as it is to most of us, Hunter Biden is a grown man who... Is old enough to know better, who is old enough to not be seduced. It's not like they were getting a, a, a 15 year old to call his dad. And and so what's what's transpired and what they're investigating now, kind of investigating, is something for which I don't have any sympathy. Again, I, I can understand hypothetically how you would be a target for all kinds of people, and a lot of them would not be nice people. But when a, when a man becomes president or a woman someday, there are obligations on their relatives to recognize what that means and act accordingly. Hunter Biden was not new to this because his father had been vice president for several years, so he had been in the bubble, he had been with the Secret Service, 
He had been at and around the White House and around President Obama, and I'm just not buying that he didn't know exactly how he was going to rake it in and exactly what this was about. I think it's interesting that Robert Kennedy Jr. is now saying we need a real investigation of the Biden bribery scandal. And what he's saying is, we need one that isn't the Republicans just doing what you would expect Republicans to do in a situation like this. We, we, this is real corruption. And, you know, he doesn't have to say any of that. First of all, Robert Kennedy doesn't even have to run for president. He's a Kennedy. He's married to a beautiful Hollywood uh, spouse. He's got a, a successful nonprofit career. He's got a comfortable life. He's got, by his own telling, seven children who love him, which is the most important thing in the world, he says to him. Little Tucker Carlson that. Uh, you know, he's 69 years old. He um, doesn't have to do this, but he's doing it. And he certainly doesn't have to say any of this stuff about Biden. Because remember that every time he speaks ill of Joe Biden, he makes it harder to get accepted by or listened to people in the Democratic Party. I mean, if he was running for the Republican nomination, then yeah, bash the hell out of Joe Biden. But he's a Democrat. And he doesn't have to say any of this stuff. And it's not his calling card. By the way, he makes a great point. He says he thinks he's been slammed harder than anybody out there, including perhaps even Donald Trump. Because he makes the point that Trump at one point had a, before he ran for president, Trump had a very cozy relationship with a lot of people in the media. They loved him. He was very in in the entertainment world. People forget that now, but it's a fact. He was the toast of the television and movie industry. Robert Kennedy didn't get that uh, honeymoon because from his early anti-vax positions, he's always been kind of a pariah to them. But anyway, I think it's interesting that he's calling for the investigation. Chris Christie, of all people, said something I actually kind of agreed with over the weekend. I I didn't pull up the audio, but he was on um, with Margaret Brennan. And she actually asked him a question about why don't the Republicans move on from Hunter Biden? Why don't, the, why don't the Republicans move on? There's been a plea deal. Would you advise your party to move on? And his point is, move on? The media never moved in. They, they, you guys have never covered this. You've never really investigated it, with a few exceptions. But it also doesn't take one of the largest U.S. attorney offices in the country this long to investigate tax fraud and to dismiss a gun charge. So his point, which I thought was a good comeback, was move on. We haven't even moved in. 210-599-5555. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but apparently the combination of the new Barbie movie and the Oppenheimer movie have made for one of the biggest um, movie weekends in history. And if you take out opening weekends with like a Star Wars or a superheroes movie, uh, probably the biggest. The two of them combined 
did so much box office that it was one of the best. Well, it was the best weekend Hollywood's had since the pandemic, which is interesting. And one of the best weekends Hollywood's ever had. Just these two movies driving that primarily, although I'm sure other movies contributed. Um, but I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of people that have seen the Oppenheimer movie, and I'd love to get a caller if you, if you saw it. Um, I'd love to hear your take on it. Because two things are, are going on here that I think are kind of interesting with the Oppenheimer movie. First, the director, Christopher Nolan, is one of the old school kind of movie directors in the sense that in the old days of Hollywood, you would have directors who could write their own ticket. They could get any budget, they could get anybody, and he's that kind of director. There are not many left. So he is able to do the big movie, the big picture, the big, you know, get get his choice of whoever he wants in it, and they'll throw anything, any resources he wants to make a movie. He's He's got a track record that enables him to do that. So he's, in choosing to make Oppenheimer, he's able to make it in a way that most directors would not be able to make it. But then J. Robert Oppenheimer is also a really fascinating character, and he's representative of, of a fascinating time. You probably know that this movie is about the birthing of the atomic bomb and the, the secret project during World War II to win the race, the United States trying to be the first country to harness this and, and unleash this so as to not get beaten to it by Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. It turns out the Japanese were nowhere near it. It turns out the Nazis were getting very close to it. So they, they put together this unprecedented prog- project with unprecedented funding. They have to hide the funding. They have to hide the whole project. That's why they're in New Mexico, because they're trying to be far away from scrutiny and publicity. And, and J. Robert Oppenheimer is both a brilliant scientist, but he's also now called upon to be this this organizer, this this uh, you know guy that pulls people together and and helps people that hate each other or are rivals work together. So he has to be both the project leader on a very practical level and the visionary on kind of a higher level. And then all of these people, I shouldn't say all of them, many of these scientists, Oppenheimer included, are very conflicted people because they have pride, they want to succeed, they want to be first, they want that more than they want it for like patriotic reasons. They want the, they want to be the ones who do this first. But they also know in a way that no politician understands, Roosevelt, none of them. They know what this is going to mean. They know what this could do to the world and what kind of world we could have with atomic weapons. They knew it before anybody did. Now we all know. So it's a fascinating story. And it's a story of a time when tremendous faith and virtually unlimited resources were given over to scientists by politicians who could not and would not really challenge or question what they were doing. Does that sound familiar? And it was done in a sense of urgency and emergency. and uh, It was felt that to lose this race would mean everything. Would mean to lose the war, maybe. And, of course, there's still debate about whether the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
were necessary to end the war. They certainly did end it, but but were they necessary to is, is an open debate even to this day, which which gives you an idea, if we're not resolved on that now, what it must have been like to discuss this over dinner or drinks at Los Alamos. And that's why I think the Oppenheimer story is interesting. If you've seen it, I'd love to hear what you thought, what you think. Uh, they said they were going to do it, and now they've done it. Uh, this came down this afternoon. The Department of Justice... U.S. Department of Justice is suing Texas uh, over those floating uh, border barriers. They're called buoys or border buoys, big, giant, orange things that uh, sit in strings along the uh, the Rio Grande. And, and um, it's part of, it's not all of, but it's part of the state-run operation uh, to secure uh, the border. The federal government is saying that the barrier obstructs, quote, the navigable capacity of waters of the United States and therefore is a violation of the Constitution. I think it's interesting that um, you would in, you would refuse to enforce existing law and then call out someone for violating the law. Like, that's a very... You've got to know that you won't be called on that. You've got to know that the media coverage will not immediately mock and ridicule you for the hypocrisy of that, and they know they won't. They know they won't. So Texas does something only because the federal government isn't doing it. And the federal government says you can't do that. Uh, The White House calling it, among other things, outrageous, and un-American. Well, it is it not outrageous and un-American to uh, flood people into the country illegally? Seems like that's un-American. I mean, the reason we are a country people want to come to is, as has been said a million times, the, the things that make this country a country people want to come to are things you have to protect or they will cease to be. And we're not protecting them. The lawsuit goes on to say, the state of Texas' actions violate federal law, raise humanitarian concerns, present serious risks to public safety and the environment, who's going to get that in, and may interfere with the federal government's ability to carry out its official duties. Um, th- the... Uh, Risk to public safety, the humanitarian concerns. I'm pretty sure that what makes the border dangerous is not the buoys. It's the coyotes. It's the smuggling. It's the fentanyl. um, It's the preying on innocent people. It's the infiltration of people that are far from innocent. You know, you've got everything from people that are victims of coyotes, victims of crime, to people that are military-age men traveling unaccompanied. They're not bringing a family, probably don't have a family. They're coming from countries far, far away from our hemisphere. No one can explain just the phenomenon of that. Like, no one has a... a I've never read, and I feel like I've read a lot about this, maybe I haven't seen everything, but I've never heard anyone with a logical, plausible explanation for all the young Chinese men. I'm nothing against Chinese men. 
But you would think somebody with a bunch of degrees on the wall would say, well, you know why? But they don't. They can't. There isn't an explanation that I've ever heard. 210-599-5555. So as with a lot of things, I think the lawsuit is projection, right? Everything they're saying about Abbott's moves, and I don't think Abbott's moves are that great. They seem sort of half-hearted. But everything you say about what he's doing is a projection of what you're not doing. So you're the one making it inhumane, unsafe. The U.N. even said that the U.S.-Mexico border is one of the most dangerous borders in the world. Think about all the places that have civil war, that have ethnic cleansing. Imagine our southern border, according to the U.N., whatever that's worth, it's one of the most dangerous in the world. It's saying something. It's saying something. Whether you agree with that or not, it certainly is dangerous. It has become very dangerous. The question is, do you believe Greg Abbott is making it dangerous? Or do you believe Team Biden is making it dangerous? Uh, Katie writes to Jack at KTSA.com. Oppenheimer is an important, complicated movie with a great cast. It's been a long time since we've had something this substantial out of Hollywood. It's three full hours long. We watched a couple of documentaries on YouTube about Oppenheimer before we went. Norma says she went to see Sound of Freedom over the weekend. It's another movie that drove the box office. Exceptional points of view from agent parents and children regarding sex trafficking and government. I would like to see the Oppenheimer and Barbie movies, writes Norma to Jack at KTSA.com. They're giving an award to Corinne Jean-Pierre. Outfest is giving an achievement award for press and media to the first openly gay White House press secretary, but she will not go to the event uh, which is tonight because um, of the Hollywood strike. I, I got to say, it, she's probably a very nice person, but I, I kind of feel this way uh, about her and about the football coach that came out last week for the Jacksonville Jaguars. It, it, was, it was a very big deal. It was very bold to come out as gay in your profession 10 years ago. And longer. I, I, I don't know why we're still pretending this is a bold move. We're putting everything on the line. If anything, um, the way employment and academia work, um, when you come out now, you're actually putting yourself in a protected class. Like, they're, they're, you might actually be making a very shrewd move. I'm not saying that's why people do it or why you should do it. Um, and I will still admit and and agree that to come out to your family to come out to your friends is still a very scary thing for people but i don't know why we're giving out awards and stuff uh in 2023 blogger named jim hoff who blogs at the gateway pundit uh says he believes that joe biden will step down from office claiming a sudden medical emergency as the walls close in on criminal actions involving President Biden, his son Hunter, and the extended Biden family. So he points out we had the whistleblower testimony last week. We had the FBI document from Chuck Grassley showing amounts of money in the tens of millions of dollars. Um, 
lawyers that have prosecuted RICO cases say this would be a strong case. They'd go to court with this. Uh, it's interesting. He points out, you know, Democrats are trying to put Donald Trump in jail. They make no secret of the fact. That's the end game. Nothing less will do. Where are the Republicans? The, the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is that Republicans don't have the zeal to do this that the Democrats do. And, and maybe you don't want to see another president impeached, and maybe you're sick of hearing about that. I don't know. I'm just pointing out that, and, and, and Hoff is pointing out, that Democrats are clear that their goal is to put behind bars the opponent that is most likely to be the nominee next year. Republicans really don't want to do this. They don't want to have to go after Biden. And so Hoff says they probably won't. Uh, He'll have a slip, a fall, a medical emergency. His administration will tearfully announce that he's stepping down from office. He writes, then the media will insist that the Biden crime story is, quote, yesterday's news and has already been prosecuted. People will be lectured on what a great leader Joe Biden was and how he should forever be honored in our memories and our history books. Somebody dug up, um, this is... uh, Joe Biden giving a speech in about 1992. He's a senator. And he's predicting that he won't even be around in the year 2020. Listen to this, cut number five. The decision will affect what happens to this country long after Senator Biden is gone, long after President Bush is gone, long after President Reagan's administrations are forgotten. If they live, Justice Souter, God willing, lives as long as the average age of the court now, he'll be making landmark decisions in the year 2020. I'll be dead and gone in all probability. And so it's important. Mm. Um, I'm thinking that's about 92, because I think Souter was nominated somewhere in there uh, by Bush 41. And um, it's funny to hear him talk about David Souter like he's going to be this conservative scourge. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it, it, uh, it's fascinating to think that even Joe Biden didn't think Joe Biden would still be a factor. Here we are in 2023. Is the Jason Aldean thing, where, is the, where are we on that? I, it, it was very red hot last week. And a lot of people made the point, that the, the song Try That in a Small Town, a lot of people wrote to me and said, well, Jack, I, isn't it good that, I mean, they tried to cancel him, and instead the song grew in popularity, and they tried to stop uh, the Sound of Freedom movie, and that grew in popularity, and aren't you encouraged by these things? Um, and I would be, except for one thing, and I don't mean to rain on your parade, but um, just because when they go after a person, that person becomes more popular or becomes a cause or more people check out his song or his book or his movie or whatever, that's not cause for celebration because the essential fact is there is an organized effort to deplatform the person. Like, you wouldn't be able to get Jason Aldean's song if they had their way because you wouldn't be able to 
uh, you know, put it on your own playlist or download it or find it anywhere. We wouldn't be able to play it for you. The people that are behind the, the notion of censorship are not idiots. They do know that if they fail, if they fall short, they run the risk of making the thing they tried to censor more popular. We, we knew this back in the 80s when, um, what's her name, uh, Gore's wife, I can't think of her first name, Tipper, Tipper Gore, was crusading to put warning labels on rock albums. Remember that parental warning, explicit lyrics? And those stickers, for those of us of a certain age, made an album, particularly by an artist we didn't know, more appealing, more we were more curious about. It. I want to hear this. What, what do they say on this record? So the, the, they've known for a long time that, it, 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 you know, if you, if you shoot the king, you better kill the king. If you try to take somebody down and you fail, the result will be that they become more notorious or well-known. But what I keep coming back to is the ability to um, explain, marginalize, silence, erase, is tremendous. It's tremendous capability. Look no further than the Hunter Biden story on the run-up to the 2020 election. Look at how many people said, oh, if I'd known that, I might have voted differently. They didn't know it. It was kept from them. So what, what happened to Jason Aldean, whatever you think of it, was not the ultimate, this is what they can do when they put their mind to it kind of thing. They kind of went after him kind of haphazardly. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm glad that it blew up in their face, and I'm glad that he's cashing in on it. Um, and I'm glad that the, the faux outrage is being explained. I'm glad that a lot of people are asking the question, well, where were these people for years with explicit and violent lyrics in hip-hop, in death metal, in dark wave? Where, where, where were you? Where were you when there were songs about school shootings? Where were you when there were songs about underage rape? Where were you when there were songs about killing police officers? You, you were nowhere. You've never, you've never had a problem with any of that. I'm glad that people are recognizing all that. But just remember, underneath all the fog of war, there's tremendous collusive power to just take something completely away. So when they get their way, Jason Aldean's song is nowhere. They just didn't get their way in this case. You would think uh, almost three years of the Biden administration and our climate czar, John Kerry. Why are we having uh, this, uh, you know, horrible, uh, no good uh, end of the planet summer? Come on, you guys. You guys have had three years. Shouldn't things be getting better? You've got the power. What are you doing? I see where the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, is jumping on the EV thing. Uh, he wants to require only EV uh, sales in New Jersey by the year 2035. 100% of cars would have to be EV by 2035 in New Jersey. It's 
it's hard to tell what's going on with sales because everything's all over the place. But generally, with some exceptions, uh, EV sales are not going very well. A lot of uh, makes and models are piling up on dealers' lots. Uh, they have a uh, increased supply of them. They sit longer. And that's a big deal in the car business. Uh, they, they, they scrutinize and they pour over the amount of days that a vehicle sits unsold because that's really how they know what to be building, building more of, building less of. And um, I've read anecdotally about dealer lots full of uh, Mustang Mach-E's and dealers won't accept new allocations of them. Um, I know Chevy cancels the electric uh, Silverado, the the work truck edition. In other words, they're not confident that that fleet buyers will buy an electric uh, Silverado truck. That's something interesting in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this was a um, editorial said if the goal was to reduce emissions, and that is the goal, right? Isn't that what we're doing here? If the goal were to reduce emissions. Governments would impose a carbon tax. And what kind of EVs would we get then? Not Teslas, but hybrids like Toyota's Prius. A wheelbarrow full of rare earth and lithium can either power one battery-powered car or over 90 hybrids, a California dealer recently said. But the fact seems to be lost on policymakers. And Toyota is one of those companies that's trying to go more in on the on the hybrids because they they believe that is what they can sell and what people will drive and this whole thing about range anxiety and the infrastructure of charging stations. So our policy makers are saying one thing, but they're announcing policies that actually would do something else. If they want to reduce carbon... That's not the net effect of the policies they're announcing. And it's also interesting to me that they are so against coal mining because it's dirty and it's bad for the environment, but they they need to be, they have to be pro-lithium mining and other, um, you know, rare earth items. You know, there have been places where they won't let people, they discover it, like they discovered a bunch of uh, veins of lithium in, in the state of Maine, and they proposed to mine it, and the, the state government said no. Now, if our leaders, if our governors and our Congress critters and our president are really all in on EVs, then any time, anywhere, they could get their hands on these rare earth minerals, they'd be all for it. They'd be Manhattan projecting it, right? Put the rush on. They're not. And so the the wake-up call for people is not, do you want an EV or not? The wake-up call is, do you really want to have your own car or not? Because what they're doing is, going to result in fewer privately owned cars. There will just be fewer of them. They will be very expensive to obtain and maintain. 
and therefore the pe- people that can afford a used car or an economy car now will be priced completely out of the concept of private car ownership. That's not going to be an accident. I think that's going to be an intention. I was reading an article about um, the dispute over some uh, lithium mines on indigenous lands, some of the Native American tribes in Nevada have been fighting in court. Uh, the tribes are saying the land is sacred, and the environmentalists are with them. No, we don't want um, mining here. There's endangered birds, but there's lithium. So I wonder which side the left will choose. On one side are Native Americans and endangered birds. Ordinarily, lefties have no problem with that. But on the other side, there's lithium. And then you think about solar panels. Big push for solar panels. But solar panels are mostly made by, and investments in them mostly benefit, our number one enemy. China. Is that accidental? Is that just like stupidity? Or is that intentional? Oh, and by the way, who is it that supposedly uh, paid the Bidens millions of dollars? Wasn't that China? So it's hard not to look at all this stuff and say it has very little, if anything, to do with the environment and even less to do with this summer's weather. Yeah, my daughter's 18 and uh, I, I, you know, she's the center of my world. So it's not that I ever forget that I have a daughter. But I will say, whenever anybody asks me anything about parenting, for just like a second, I'm like, why the hell would you be? Oh, you're okay. <laughs> because I don't feel like I I don't feel like I should give any advice. I, I do not feel like an expert. I had one kid, you know, but um I think when people ask your opinion about something, it's only because you've been there and they haven't been there yet. And a very good friend of mine asked me a question the other day that kind of threw me. He said, how old should a kid be to get their first cell phone? And again, my, my first instinct was, what, what are you asking me for? But okay, I, I mean, I went through that. At what age should a kid get their own phone. And he's pondering this because his kids are of an age where they now want one, their friends have them, they don't have them. And he's very strict and he has not given in, but he knows that at some point there's an age. And what is that age? And I thought it was a good question. And I had a terrible answer. I gave him a terrible answer because I wasn't, I was caught off guard and I was surprised and I was preoccupied so i thought about it some more and um and i want to put the question to you at what age should a kid get a phone what do you think 210-599-5555 i googled it because that's what we do now (laughs) and google says it's 13 i was really not expecting it to be an exact age i thought it would be a range it's 13 Um, And then I read an article, this was in Forbes, a pediatrician uh, was asked the question, and um, statistically, 
It says 42% of kids get a phone by 10. By 14, 91% of them have a phone. That seems really high. 13, 10 to 14. So this is my answer, and I want to hear yours. And phone lines are open, 210-599-5555. At what age should a kid get a phone? Well, first of all, it's not the age, it's the kid. I mean, it, and that's and that really is the answer on everything, right? Unless it's a legal question like age of consent. But I mean, on on a lot of things, it's 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 the individual child. It's your perception of their brain and their judgment, and every kid's different, and you know your kid, hopefully. So it's really the it's the kid, not the age. I will say, and, and I base this on experience, but I certainly didn't invent it, that I do think when they get the phone, parental oversight is really important. Like, you, you don't have to worry so much about the age as you have to make sure that you're in that world. They can't password protect anything, or if they do, you've got to know the password. If they use an app, you've got to use the app. If they've got a name on an app, you've got to know what it is. You've got to be able to look. You've got to be able to look at their phone every day, every night. You've got to be able to ask them questions. Who's this? Why do you have that? Why were you searching this? And if you can't do that, then it's not that the kid isn't ready for a phone. It's you're not ready for them to have a phone. We did a thing that I don't know if people do anymore, but when Gabby was getting to be of that age... Uh, there was a there was a, a trend or a, a a thing online where people were having their kids sign a contract, and we did that uh, with Gabby. She signed a contract, and it was just like I wrote it on the word processor. I copied and pasted it out of things I'd read about. It was basically like I agree that my parents can see my phone anytime. I agree that I won't plug it in at my in my bedroom at night. I agree that I won't put anything behind a password that they don't have. I agree that if I break any of the rules I've agreed to, they'll take the phone, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So whatever you want to put in there, you can put in there and, and have them agree to it, just so everybody knows these are the expectations. The other thing I told my friend <coughs> was, because um, he really doesn't want to get his daughter a phone. I said, well, you don't have to. I mean, if you're not ready, they're not ready. Don't do it. But just know this, um, if you don't get your kid a phone, they will be able to use phones, and you won't know anything about it. So the kids that don't have phones use the phones of the friends who do have phones. I knew this because Gabby had an incredible mastery of her phone the minute she got it. I I mean, there was no way... She hadn't, she hadn't been familiarized with some of these things already. And that's just all kids. And it's, you know, they don't mean anything by it, but they're so curious that they're going to be on other people's phones. So I totally support people that want to wait, but just know that when you wait, your kid may not wait and probably won't wait. Uh, what do you think? What's the age? Or how did you figure out the, the, the right time? What do you think? 210-599-5555. It looks like, statistically, it happens sometime between 10 and 14. Anybody wait longer than that? 
10 seems really young. I don't, I can't. But, I mean, everything is different. Circumstances are different. You have people that say, well, I'm a single parent. I need to be able to reach them. They need to be able to reach me. I would never want them to be out of pocket. Of course, we didn't have these, and we knew to get in touch with our parents. But we could put a dime in a payphone and get in touch with them. I guess that's not an option anymore. Uh, so what do you think? What is what is the age, if there is an age? 210-599-5555. I, I assume that everybody has an opinion about this. And I'm just curious to know what yours is. I, I don't think there's a wrong answer. You may take exception to something I've said. You can, you can be mad at me if you want. But I, I think everybody tries their best and, and means well. And um, like I said, I, what, what I found worked well was really checking it, oversight. I think when they know that you're going to look at it every day, it probably, they hate it but it probably discourages some things that they might try to do otherwise. And, and maybe I didn't catch everything. But, you know, when your kid knows you're looking, you're scrolling, you're going to ask, who's this, who's that, what is this number two? Um, and I also think, um, I think probably as time goes on, kids are more aware of, like, the stranger aspect of it. Like, when when this first became a thing, smartphones, there was there was panic that kids would be taken in by and talk to someone they thought was their age through a game or an app, and it would turn out to be some creepy adult. That can still happen. I'm sure it does still happen. But obviously kids today have heard and maybe even known of that, whereas in the early stages of this, there was probably more naivete, so I think that's probably fair to say. Uh, same thing with you know stranger danger out in the world. I mean, kids become more hardened, more um, aware of the urban legends that are out there. Uh, so that that you got that working for you. You got the oversight working for you. Um, I was not a big uh, fan of like putting a lot of controls on the phone. Because people told me, tech-savvy friends of mine told me, yeah, you can put um, all these nanny things on there, but kids know how to overcome them and work around them, and they will. And so I, I put a little more stock personally just in kind of the, the nightly review. Um, but what do you think? 210-599-5555. At what age, if there is one, should kids get a phone? Michael is on KTSA. Michael, good evening. Good evening, Jack. I think uh, 16 years old when they get their driver's license because most, and you hit it earlier, most parents don't take the time to be involved. That You know, you don't, this is my phone. It's my contract child. You did not have an expectation of privacy. But most parents don't So do that. you would say 16? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, well, l let me ask you this, Michael, because I'm not arguing with you. I'm just curious what you think. You do know that if a if a if a 15 and a half year old doesn't have one, he or she will be surrounded by friends that do. So, do you are you concerned at all that they'll be using phones over which you have no uh, monitoring? 
Yes, definitely, uh, because the uh, those you talked about it. You know the uh, sex offenders and the predators are out there, and they're up on the technology. And no, but what I'm asking you is, if you say to your kid, "I'm not getting you one till you're 16," and he or she is, let's say, 15, and they want to do stuff, they will just use a friend's phone, and you won't know that, and you won't be able to check that phone or look at it or have control over it. So you won't really have kept them from a cell phone, you'll have just kept them from one that has your name on it. That is true, but that's one uh, one less piece to the puzzle, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah. Got risk you got to take. Okay. Uh, Michael, thank you. Michael says, uh, not till they're 16 years old. How old should kids be before they get a phone? James is next on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, James. Hey, Jack. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I think you and I had this conversation a number of years ago, but I, I can only tell you my experience. My daughter had her phone when she was five years old, and I found that at that age, children will or what you have to say. Um, mm. And what happened over time is that getting it was interesting to her, but when her other friends started getting it, it's like a new toy. It, it wasn't anything interesting to her anymore. And today she's 24 and she hates a phone. She doesn't like <laughs> having it. And, you know, she doesn't really particularly care for the social media thing, but um, it, you know, it, it's, it's a tool. She uses it when she needs to for, for, you know, mostly for internet stuff. Now back then, when she was five, they didn't have all the bells and whistles that, that they I was going to say, was it a smartphone then, or was it like a flip phone, or what was it? it well, back then it was a flip phone. I don't think they had okay. smartphones coming Probably out. Probably not, no. But, you know, whenever, whenever something new came out, she would pique an interest, and, it, you know, she, she kept up with, or we kept her up with whatever the latest stuff came out. But still, it, it, it was like, you know, eh, I got that. What's so special about it? So your idea, if I understand you, was I'm going to I'm going to introduce this technology at an age when they are still very right. much, um, you know, enraptured by their parents and and uh, you know the, the, there's no rebellion yet at five, and and then I'm going to make right. it so it's just very second nature, like it's no big deal, it's like having a pair of sneakers, and that way it won't have this sort of magical. Uh, allure that it gets when kids are adolescents. Is that kind of where you were thinking? Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much what my experience has been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember I have a, a son who's two years younger than her, and I remember kind of listening to them once they were playing, and my son was said, Dad said we can't play with that like that. And, you know, they, they would check each mm -hmm. other, and then mm -hmm. they put it up, you know, and mm -hmm. at, at, again, at, at that age, at young ages, they're they're they're, they're more likely than not to listen to what you have right, to say. Right, right. Oh, yeah, I mean, you, you hung the moon. At, when they're five, you're, you're like the most yeah. the greatest man that ever lived. Let me ask you this, though, because I'm just curious. I'm sure people are wondering this as they hear you say it. You must have had some looks or other parents were like, what the heck are you doing? I mean, five? Yeah, at the, be yeah, at, at the beginning, and you got to remember, the flip phone back then was new, new technology for all of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it, it, gosh, she's 24, 
that was, and, and five, you know, that's 20 years ago. So, yeah, you did, but uh, interesting enough, you know, they, they were upset because their kids were asking for one. Yeah, the other parents were like, you thanks know? a lot. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Um, do you think yeah. you would do that? Now, let's let's say that you had a five-year-old today, and today it's a smartphone and it's got all these features and accessibility. Would you still think that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I know that you can put limitations on it and you can do all sorts of blockers. And uh, with, with today's technology, um, mm. maybe I wouldn't have introduced it that early, but mm-hmm. I, I think that the earliest is the better, simply because, like I said, it's okay. like a new toy. They, yeah. They're interested yeah. in it, and then they lose interest because they get over it. I, I, I've yeah. had one of those. What, what's so great about that? Okay. Right? Very interesting. You're going to skew our you're going to skew our numbers, I think, James. But <laughs> that's a very interesting theory. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Um, James says five. Uh, Susan on Facebook says, I don't think it's a number, it's a responsibility level. Yeah, that's right, I think. Um, Jordan writes, uh, depending on their needs, if it's out of necessity to communicate about sports or extracurriculars, I would uh, expect that age to be sooner than if it's just to communicate with uh, friends. Um, uh, Karen says, for, uh, Karen says 18, Kelly says 14. Thomas says when they can use a sentence without the word like in it. I wouldn't have one now if that was the case. Uh, Chin says as soon as the parents see fit, it varies so much that I'd say to each their own. Yeah, it's a responsibility uh, thing, and there are kids. There there always have been and there always will be, you know, kids that are like old souls. And, I mean, you you'll know that in a variety of other ways. So no one can tell you that it's the right or wrong age. I was just kind of curious based on maybe how you handled it or what the approximate age is. Um, If they are asking for one, there's a good chance their friends have one. And if their friends have one and you say, well, no, I don't think you're ready yet, they'll just, they'll use the friend's phone. And kids, it's amazing. You would never, you would never hand your phone to other people. Oh, here, you know, they they do that all the time. I'd, I'd be in the back seat. I mean, I'd be driving, and my kids, my, my kid would be in the back seat with her friends. I mean, phones would be passed around like nothing. I, I've never handed my phone to somebody else and said, "Oh, here, yeah, have at it," you know. But they they will do that, and they will do it. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Do you think there's an age or a way to know, or how did you handle it when your kids were that age? Um, I do think the point about the old phones versus smartphones is a good point. It's kind of different. They're also a lot more breakable now than they used to be. You could throw those flip phones around with abandon. You can break a smartphone pretty easily, pretty quickly. Uh, so what would you do, or what did you do? 210-599-5555. I notice on Facebook a lot of people are right around that 14-year uh, uh, mark. Other people are saying, hey, I'm not getting it until they can pay for it themselves. Um, and David even says never. <laughs> um, so what would be your answer? When's the, when's the right age or how do you know when the right time is, uh, for your kid? Arthur is on the Jack Riccardi show. Arthur, what do you think? Hello, Jack. I'm enjoying your show. And, uh, I think about the age of 12 being that, you know, we don't want our kids falling behind our, our technology. And I know a lot of this is driven by our, you know, the school systems. They're issuing out laptops and also with their phones, downloading apps. It's not mm-hmm. all fun and games. Sometimes they may need that for their mm-hmm. education. And 
You know, I think about at the age of 12 when they go into uh, middle school, it's a good age for them to start uh, going mm-hmm. into that with restrictions. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, is that it's also being driven by the industry itself when they have these plans that say that mom and dad, if you, you can have three phones, iPhones, right. or free if you just add a couple of lines. So it's a lot of that is, is not just the peer pressure on the kids, but also on the adults as well. And, you know, we, we want our kids to be connected and all that. So it's the a big, huge driving force that's yeah. been around for yeah. 20 years on that. It was kind of an eye-opener for me, Arthur, being 100 years old, that teachers <laughs> were starting to assign things in the classroom on the assumption that every kid had a device. And yeah. if the kid didn't have one, they, like you said, they would supply a tablet or, or something. But, um, yeah, it was kind of an eye-opener to realize, okay, the, the, the schools are assuming that kids have uh, internet access readily available and mobile, and um, you're going to have to work with that if that is the case where your kids go to school. Great point, Arthur. Thank you. Good to have you. Results on our poll question coming up. What do you think about our poll question? Can you name an age where kids are ready for their first smartphone? How did you handle it if you had kids, have kids? How did you decide? How did you handle it? What were the the ground rules? Um, I I don't think there's a a single right answer. Uh, And when I was asked this question by a very good friend who I wanted to give a good answer to, I felt like I gave a crappy answer because it it was kind of off the cuff and I wasn't prepared for it and I blurted out nonsense I think and then I thought about it and it's really not the age as much as it is the kid so uh, you know there are kids that are ready to work at a certain age and others that are not there are kids that are ready to drive at 16 and others that are not ready even though they're legally entitled to Uh, and then you gotta have some you gotta somebody once said it this way you have to live in their digital universe Uh, i heard somebody say that i thought that was very smart so if they're going to be on instagram and you never used instagram now you need to be on instagram have an account know theirs know the password and because you're on it and you're in it you'll be able to monitor what they're doing and then uh the reality is that if you want to hold off and there are good reasons to hold off Chances are your your child's peers will have phones, at least some of them, and th- these kids will share these phones. They'll use them. So uh, one of the things you got to calculate is, do I want to be the one that controls the phone they're using, or do I want them on a phone where I know nothing? I don't know any idea. I have no idea what they're doing. I can't see, and I can't look at it. Because every other phone they use, you'll have no input in at all. Just a few thoughts on that. 210-599-5555. This is a good answer from Chad on Facebook. Just like teaching them to shoot and about firearms, I base it on behavior, level of maturity, but still monitor behavior and activity and use. That's a good That's a good analogy. I mean, um, it's not necessarily keeping kids safe from guns to keep kids from guns. It's a good analogy. Uh, what do you think? And again, there's all kinds of answers out there. There are people that are saying, I will never buy my kid, would never buy my kid a phone. 
They, they can deal with that when they're old enough to get one for themselves. And so, no, at no time while they're under my roof living with me will they have a phone. I've had a lot of people on Facebook saying that. Uh, 210-599-5555. And I'm sure the answer has also changed with the evolution to smartphones. It was a different calculation, you know. You think about the first phone you had. You remember your first phone? I had a, had a Nokia. I had one of those phones that um, you had to, like, extend the little plastic antenna. Did you have one of those? And it actually worked whether you put the antenna up or not. And I began to think that maybe the antenna didn't even really do anything. Like, I'm not sure it made a difference. Was it just there to make us think it was doing something? But, yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a clunky, big... It wasn't even a, a flip phone. It was just a big phone. Not a brick, but, you know, pretty primitive. Remember when they put cameras on them? Was that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? It's hard to say with certainty because on the one hand, look at all the events that have been documented and look at all of the criminal cases and look at all of the, the times that people have been able to save themselves by being able to document what they did or what was going on or what was happening in front of them or to them. On the other hand, the, there's probably no other single technology that has made us stupider than the camera on our phones. We have so many pictures now, right? I mean, when, when my mom wanted to take a picture of us, she had to borrow my aunt's phone, her sister, she, I mean, her, my, my aunt's camera. It was like a Kodak 128 or 126 or something camera. And have flash cubes, remember those? and film, and then you had to be careful not to waste any because the film came in 12 or 24 exposures. When it was done, it was done. That was only a camera while you had film in it. When it didn't have film in it, it was, it was, it was a brick. It was nothing. She so took the pictures. Then you had to go get them developed. And if you didn't go to like a photo mat, you had to wait. And then they'd come in, and you wouldn't know if they'd come out till you opened the little envelope. And, oh, man, I blurted, I moved. Oh, he, he blinked. You didn't know. So every picture was intentional and, you know, we didn't take pictures of stupid stuff. Here's a picture of my breakfast. Here's a picture of my dessert. You know, we didn't do that. No one made duck lips back in those days. There were no selfies because you didn't know how to do it with a, with a camera. You know, you couldn't see if you had yourself or not. And have somebody else take a picture of you. What is more pathetic than, here I am taking pictures of myself in a bathroom. So yeah, the, the camera, that may go down in history, right? Like, that's like a crime against humanity. Anyway, what's the right age if there is one? 210-599-5555. Hello, Peggy. Hello. Well, I'm, I have three children and seven grandchildren, and I've watched them grow up and get phones. But I think my children have given their kids phones for the parents' convenience. When mm. they get to the age that they want to be able to touch base with them, they want to know where mm. they are, mm -hmm. they want to look on the phone and see they're on their way home mm. with that 360 app. So I find my kids 
wanting to be able to get in touch with the, their kids themselves. Yeah, yeah. But that's a great a point. Control. It is. So what, what you're <laughs> so saying is think it's for the convenience of the parents. Yeah, yeah. Or or maybe not only convenience, but it it gives parents a feeling of security. Right. They can get hold of them whenever they want yeah. to. I wonder how our parents felt when all we had was a dime in our sneaker. Right. <laughs> I mean, somehow they somehow they had a pretty good feeling about that, but no, they had no yeah. electronic tether on us whatsoever, right? Yes, I somehow do agree. And exposure to the, exposure has been to a lot, but I, I do think yeah. the parents feel safer knowing they yeah. can get in touch with their kids. That's thank a great you. point. Peggy, thank you. Appreciate your call. Appreciate your listening to us. Uh, 210 599 I was interested in some of the Facebook answers. People were saying, sort of what Peggy said, that um, you got to make it work for your family. Like one guy said, you know, it's it, it depends on the family and how everybody's in a different place or if you're divorced or um, it may also depend to some degree on whether you have a kid that's in a lot of activities. Uh, David says um, it's important for kids to learn what a phone is for and learn the proper usage of it, uh, and then as they get older, you know, sort of unleash or unblock some of the access or some of the capabilities. Uh, I think that's good. So what would be your answer? What's the Is there an age? What's the age? Or what's the stage? Uh, 210-599-5555 or jack at ktsa.com. This is interesting, by the way. The Toronto Zoo is concerned about screen time for the gorillas at the zoo. Too much screen time. They're asking visitors to the Toronto Zoo to please not show cell phone videos to the gorillas. They've posted signs asking visitors not to use the phones to show photos or videos to the gorillas. I didn't know people were doing that. You're showing stuff on your phone to an animal? Should I be showing stuff to my dog? I've never done that. Should I be? I think I'm going to start her on that. Next thing, she'll want a phone. It says that on the signs, it says that showing photos or, or videos to the gorillas, some content may be upsetting and affect their relationships and behavior within their families. Holly Ross, behavioral husbandry supervisor at the zoo. Is that what we used to call a zookeeper? I don't know. Uh, says uh, they haven't really noticed any changes yet, but they want to make sure that the animals' lives remain as natural as possible. We just want the gorillas to be gorillas, she says. And uh, we want you to see the gorillas in their natural state and not to be affected uh, one gorilla named Nasir has been showing a particular interest in videos on visitors' phones. Uh, Nasir, born in 2009, seems fascinated by videos, and screen time would dominate his life if he had his way, according to the zoo's website. So now we have to worry not only about our kids, but about the animals at the zoo. Listen, I think, remember when I said earlier it's lonely if you're taking a lot of pictures of yourself? I think if you're showing things on your phone... To zoo animals, that might be the new all-time low. Like, really, leave the zoo immediately, go someplace quiet, contemplate all the choices you're making in life. If you're sharing things with animals, seriously, that's like a wake-up call. You need to, you know, 
have a check down from the neck down, so to speak. Whatever that might check up from the neck up. All right, what age? At what age should kids get a phone? A lot of great answers. Um, more than I've been able to, you know, relate to you. Uh, Steve on Facebook says when they promise not to talk on speaker like their grandparents. Michael says it's more of a maturity level than an age. Ellen says uh, when their parent needs them to have one, which is what the caller was saying a minute ago, uh, Peggy. Um, so here's how it uh, stacked up. At what age should kids uh, get their first phone? 72% think it should be after the age of 14. 26% think it should be between the ages of 10 and 14. And 2% think it should be 10 years old or sooner. And we'll have a new JR poll tomorrow. We go live at 4 on KTSA, or you can find the JR poll all the time, anytime at KTSA.com. Um, this I thought was very interesting. Um, maybe even maybe even more interesting than the um, Toronto Zoo gorillas. I was reading an article that says companies are now providing workplace etiquette training to their employees. Many companies are doing it, and others are planning to do it soon. A survey found, uh, this was a uh, survey that appeared in Forbes, uh, found that uh, 20% of companies out there either offer etiquette classes or are planning to. Workplace etiquette is uh, described as things like interactions with coworkers, clients, appropriate work attire, office conduct. Examples of office conduct would be things like don't microwave fish in the office, uh, don't take your shoes and socks off in the office. And I'm, you know, I'm reading this. And I know you're probably thinking this too, like if you're already at the workplace, unless this is like baby boss, you don't already know this. You, in other words, these sound like things you would learn before I hire you. Now I've hired you, I'm paying you and I have to teach you like basic life skills. So the story is that companies are doing this, but it seems like the real story is why why would they have to be doing it? Well, part of the explanation is uh, remote work, that some of these people have forgotten how to be around other people, but that can't be all of it. I mean, it's almost like, the, it's almost like you, you're, you're going to work with no life skills, no life training. Were you in the in the zoo with the gorillas or what's the, you know, what's the, anyway, we'll talk about it tomorrow. We'll go live at four. See you back here then.